One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Before we begin today, we must honor three of the newest knights of our realm. First up, we have Tickles the Tiger and Wife. Longtime listeners will recall that Tickles the Tiger did an episode introduction for episode 2 I believe. Very long-time friends of the show may be aware that I still owe Tickles the Tiger a reward from the Kickstarter that got this show started. But what is two years between friends? Second, we must recognize David, the well-intentioned. Finally, we have Matthew, medium stockings. David, the well-intentioned, and Matthew, medium stockings are both our newest Patreon supporters. If you want a snarky regnal name like David and Matthew, be sure to go to the store page on the show website, wittenberg to com, and donate to the show. You can make a secure PayPal donation, of course, or become a regular donator at any level using Patreon. When we reach 40 patrons, I have promised a prize, so do check that out. If you are a bit skint but still wish to contribute, rate and review us on iTunes, or just drop by the Facebook or Twitter and say hi. It all helps. And thanks. I should also give a shout-out to Dominic Perry of the History of Egypt podcast and all the folks over at Agora. I already promoted Dominic in the Phantom Time special, but I do feel it is worth your time to check out his show. It's quite good. Anyway, on with the show. Almost all of Rudolph's troops had run away, and those of Berengar, having sounded the victory signal, were occupied collecting the spoils, when Boniface and Garriard, suddenly leaving their hiding places, cut them down all the more easily because they were unexpected. Garriard spared some, striking them with the wood and not the iron part of his spear. Boniface, instead, sparing none, caused a huge massacre. Boniface, therefore, sounded his victory signal, and those of Rudolph's side who had fled regrouped, and, chasing the Berengarians, they forced them to take flight. Berengar reached his well-known haven of Verona. Such a great massacre of soldiers occurred on that occasion that there is a great scarcity of soldiers lasting until today. Quote from Leutbrand of Cremona's Antipodosis as read by Steve Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast. Thanks, Steve. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is episode 27, Berengar the Nudnik. I'd like to start today's episode with a discussion of Yiddish insults. Now, bear with me. Yiddish is something of a pidgin language, 
which formed in the Jewish settlements of Eastern Europe in the early modern period by combining elements of Slavic, Germanic, and Hebrew languages. As befits a society of highly literate people confined to tiny little villages, Yiddish devotes much of its creativity to insults, and I could do an entire episode simply on Yiddish insults. Someday I may. But today we are concerned with two insults, the famous pairing of the Shlemiel and the Shlemazel. These two words are devilishly difficult to translate, but the best explanation is itself a traditional Yiddish joke, that at a fancy dinner party, the Shlemiel always spills his soup on the Shlemazel. To put this another way, while both parties are possessed of bad luck, the Shlemiel's bad luck is directed outwards, while the Shlemazel's bad luck impacts only themselves. Fascinating, I'm sure, but you may be wondering why this is relevant. Well, today's episode is going to discuss the period after the fall of the Gadeshi by focusing on the reign of Berengar of Friuli, the sometimes nemesis of the Gadeshi, who somehow managed to survive them despite a keen predilection for losing. History has been rather unkind to Berengar, whom Chris Wickham notes, quote, never won a pitched battle, end quote. Professor Barbara Rosenwein notes that the consensus opinion of historians is that Berengar was, quote, uniquely unsuited for rule, end quote. Oddly enough, Berengar does not come off too poorly in many of the primary sources, including Lutprand of Cremona's Antipodosis, a propagandistic hit piece directed squarely at Berengar's namesake grandson. For Berengar himself, Lutprand seems somewhat sympathetic, which, as I may have made clear in previous discussions of Lutprand, is a strange color to see him in. We even have one source that is downright fawning over Berengar, the Gesta Berengariae Imperiatoris, or the Acts of the Emperor Berengar. The author of this epic poem is unknown, but it is clearly some kind of propaganda piece written either on commission of Berengar or one of his supporters. The poem has not been translated into English, as far as I can tell, but listener Leslie once again helped me get my hands on a copy of a German version that I could sort of deal with using Google Translate. The poem is basically useless as a source, and it is only worth mentioning because, given the mandate of the author to praise Berengar, and given the dearth of praiseworthy events, the author is forced to just sort of vaguely fawn about unspecified things. Which is kind of funny to watch. Like, if Berengar had gone to a party and, for example, spilled some soup on someone, the author might report it as, And so, the glorious king sunshine on the world around him, rose from his chair and fetched the table some soup, though few were able to partake of its deliciousness. His mightiness, whose humility and kindness knows no bounds, then besought some paper towels in the restroom. You'll note the lack of actual discussions of the spillage of the soup. This is what the poem is like. Honestly, I can't make heads or tails of the thing. Few people can. The poem is, in fact, rather notorious for this amongst historians of the period. But that fact in itself is kind of funny when you think about it. Anyway, there are a smattering of other sources, but almost equally important. A number of historians have made the effort of compiling the story of Berengar's reign into something of a coherent narrative, something that has not heretofore been true with the Gadeshi. As I have said, the picture that has emerged is of a reign that is somewhat underwhelming at best. I should say that some more modern historians have made attempts to temper the negativity directed at Berengar. After all, it's not like this was an awesome time to be king in Europe. But be that as it may, it is fairly clear that Berengar's reign is sort of where the wheels come off the cart of Italy. As such, I think that the clear question we face when discussing Berengar is, was Berengar Friuli 
the Shlemiel, or the Shlemazel. Let us begin by reviewing the wider setting in the wake of the death of Emperor Lambert. With the stroke and eventual death of Arnulf of Carinthia, the Eastern Franks would spend the next few years in turmoil. Despite being the most powerful political entity in Europe, the Eastern Frankish kingdom found itself in the hands of one Louis the Child, a person who was, as you might expect, not entirely mature. Western Francia was still only halfway through its century of chaos, being at this time under the control of Robert I, brother of Odo. But then, Aquitaine, Provence, and numerous other territories had slipped out of central control, and so the main power centers of Western Francia had slipped away northwards, far from Italy. The southern dukedoms of Western Francia alternated between internal bickering and fighting off Saracen raids. Chief amongst them was the Duchy of Provence, whose duke, Louis, was the son of Ermengarde and Bosso, and who has popped in and out of our story. Now, this was not Louis the Child, or either of the Louis the Youngers we have met, or any of the dozen Louis who would be kings of France. No, this was Louis the Blind, though his name is a bit confusing, as his eyes worked fine by all accounts. We met Louis earlier, as a young prince sheltering at the court of Charles the Fat after his father, Boso, had tried to declare himself king and got kind of crushed. Charles seems to have been fairly fond of Louis, and almost made him his heir, but after Charles' death, Louis the Blind had slipped back to Provence and redeclared independence. Louis had spent most of the time since the fall of Charles the Fat in fighting a group of Saracens that had fortified themselves near the modern city of Nice, and who were busily conducting raids far into the Alps. Later on in our story, some might suggest that if he, Louis had spent less time fighting his neighbors, he might have had more success against the Saracens, but then those people would be possessed of very uncharitable characters. In southern Italy, things had settled into an uneasy stalemate. The ascendant Byzantine theme of Italy had spent much of the previous few decades expanding at the expense of the Lombard principalities in the interior, a situation enabled by their dominion over the Adriatic. But the presence of a Saracen emirate in Sicily meant that they had to be constantly on guard. The city-states of the southwestern coast paid lip service to Byzantine control, but were themselves rising commercial and maritime powers. They, and some of the other city-states, had not as yet fully reached their pinnacle of power, which meant that the Saracens of Sicily and Spain had wide latitude in the western Mediterranean. The political cohesion of the Islamic Empire had, by now, totally fragmented, but given the fragmented opposition they faced in Europe, this did not diminish the military superiority of the Islamic navies. Though some efforts had been made to turn back the tide, by the time of our story, Saracen emirates had completely taken over the Balearic Islands and Corsica, while a brutal insurgency was ongoing in Sardinia, with the Saracens dominating the low-lying areas around the coast, and Sardinian natives holed up in the mountainous interior with only fleeting contact with the outside world. Indeed, Sardinia had become the base for much of the raiding of Italy at this time, some of the navies of the Italian coastal communities had already begun to confront these pirates, but others continued to have diplomatic relationships with the various Saracen emirates and kingdoms. This, combined with the fact that at least some of the raids were conducted without official backing, while all were described by the Christian chroniclers as simply Saracen raids, it makes it difficult to parse out who is exactly fighting who in the situation. Still, the Italians acquitted themselves fairly well, and if they did not stop the raiding, they did reduce the severity. Not that it would have been a consolidation to the affected peasants, but instances of Saracens actually setting up permanent bases and threatening conquest were becoming increasingly rare in this period. 
Still, the raids didn't continue, and there were some instances of permanent bases being set up. All in all, they were enough to force the continued evacuation of the lowlands by the Italian peasantry. The situation was worst in the south, but Saracen raids took place all along the western coast of Italy, notably in Tuscany and around Rome. The group of Saracens that had ensconced themselves in Provence would conduct raids in the Alps of all places, and even raid out into the Po Valley. One of my favorite images of this entire story is that of Saracen pirates raiding bands of travelers in the High Alps. You can imagine the comic images that I am conjuring in my mind. This danger of the Saracen raiders may have contributed to the decline of the popularity of the lower but longer passages in the southern end of the Western Alps, and in the opening up of the higher but shorter passages in the Central Alps into the Swiss Plateau. That's somewhat speculation on my part, but anyway, moving on. In the Balkans, the Magyars were finishing up their conquest of the Pannonian Plain, but as yet, this resulted in only fleeting notice from the West. So, when Berengar of Friuli walked out of his Gadeshi prison in 898, Italy faced external threats that were extant, but greatly diminished. The Eastern Franks were occupied, the Western Franks were disunited, the Saracens were no longer what they had been, but then Italy was diminished as well. The remnants of the Roman bureaucracy had now suffered through centuries of mishandling and neglect. There had been no really competent king since Louis II in 875. The Gadeshi had made an attempt to reboot the empire, but had never settled in enough to get any inertia. Still, the bureaucracy was not dead yet, and some elements of it, notably the local urban administrations directed by the local bishops, were on the rise. One might think that this would translate into great papal power, with the bishops doing so well, but between Saracen raids, the loss of papal lands in Sicily, and the political faction fighting that surrounded Formosus, the papal administration was on something of a downward swing, and its power depended greatly on the character and longevity of the individual in Peter's chair. Overall, Italy seemed to be crying for the return of the empire, but such an empire would require a brilliant leader, and of course, Berengar of Friuli was convinced that he was that leader. This conviction dated to the abdication of Charles the Fat, as you'll recall, and Berengar had never surrendered his claim to the title of King of Italy, despite most of the Italian nobles turning their backs on him with Guy III's arrival, despite numerous defeats by the Gadeshi, despite becoming Arnulf's vassal only to watch Arnulf invade Italy anyway and ultimately depose him. Despite all this, Berengar continued his claim. And when Berengar was finally able to regain his land in Friuli, he still insisted on his royal title, attempting an attack on the Gadeshi military wonderkind of Lambert, with the result, as we have seen, being a defeat so complete that Lambert didn't even bother to take the time to punish Berengar before he headed back to hunting. And yet, despite a stunning lack of evidence, Berengar presumably continued to believe in himself. If stubborn insistence upon one's rights were all that was needed for victory, Berengar would have had all the beans. But for the rest of the Italian nobility, Berengar's resumption of his royal push was just... kind of awkward. I mean, he had just, just lost an entire army. And it's not like it was a one-off. Berengar is famous for never winning. And while the enemies circling Italy may not have been all that they once were, the nobility of Italy might not have seen it that way. While the royal contenders were busy with their big wars and invasions, the local nobles were the ones having to fight off Saracen raids and trying to hold society together without the backup of a central government. If they were going to have someone resume that royal dignity, they wanted someone who could, 
oh, I don't know, actually, say, beat the Saracen in a battle. Stubborn enthusiasm wasn't really enough. The situation was exacerbated in late 898, when Italy was suddenly attacked by the Magyars. Some historians think the Magyars were pointed in this direction by Arnulf, who had hired Magyar mercenaries before in small numbers. This was the opinion of Fulda, who is not a terrible source, it should be said. But then Berengar's territory in Friuli shared a border with the territory that was probably under the Magyar thumb by this point in history, and Berengar had just, I mean just, lost an army. We have no record of the Magyars raiding Italy earlier and probing for weaknesses, but with everything else going on, I'm not totally confident that we would have been told about a small probing raid. To me, the story of Arnulf, a stroke victim, hiring mercenaries to attack someone his own administration, you'll remember, had allowed to take control of the situation out of some kind of deathbed spite, I mean, it just seems kind of iffy. It seems more likely that the Magyars saw an opportunity and went for it but we probably will never know for sure. In either case, Berengar assembled a large army to face the invasion at the Battle of the Breda River, and, surprise, it was a huge disaster. No points for guessing that one right. Now, Berengar losing is not really a huge shock, and this battle isn't super pivotal, but we actually have a fairly detailed account of the events, Something we have lacked so far in our story, and it is kind of important, it did set off, you know, a century of Magyar raiding in Italy, so I thought it would be fun to give a quick summary of the battle so that we can all enjoy how terrible Berengar was. So first the Magyars convinced Berengar that the Magyars were outnumbered, and on the other side of the Breda River from the Italian camp. The Italians relaxed their guard and did not do any patrolling, not that Berengar ever seems to have done that kind of thing, given what we've learned about his previous battles. The Magyars slipped some small detachments across the river and stationed them around the camp. The main force then made a big show of attempting to cross the river, and then feigned a retreat in classic horse nomad style. The Italian cavalry pursued, and fell into the inevitable trap. They retreated from the trap to find the camp being destroyed, at which point everyone panicked, ran every which way, and were slaughtered. So yet again, Berengar leads a massive army to destruction, and Berengar, I should say, of course, escaped. Now, to be fair, many commanders in the Middle Ages fell for the feigned retreat of the horsemen. But one gets the impression that if Emperor Lambert had been in control, he would have single-handedly beaten the Magyars, and then gone back to hand-embroidering a blanket for his horse or something. At the very least, some discipline in the army and some... I don't know, some patrolling along the river might have prevented the Italian camp from being destroyed and allowed a more orderly retreat. His having bravely survived two stunning defeats in one year did not really inspire the Italian nobility with as much confidence in Berengar's regime as he might have hoped. In fact, after some head-scratching, many of the Italian nobles ended up backing Louis the Blind of Provence to be the new king of Italy. Now, you'll remember that Ermengard, Louis's mother, was the daughter of Louis II, king of Italy, who was the last real king that Italy had. And this means that Louis's claim to the Italian kingship was at least as good as Lambert's had been. In addition, he had a nice track record of fighting the Saracens, although maybe not of actually driving them out of southern France, but new. He also had a nice organized duchy of his own, so he had his own resources to bring to the table, and anyway, who else was there? Other than Berengar, there was only Adelbert, and Adelbert backed Louis. Podcast footnote. 
let's actually talk about Adelbert of Tuscany for a second. We have not really done the Margraves of Tuscany much justice in this series, which is kind of a shame. They are one of the top three noble families in Italy, after all. Of all the noble families we have discussed so far, I would have rather had an Adelbert as my lord any day of the week. The Adelberts didn't get into fights that they didn't think they could win. The Gadeshi, of course, pulled off miraculous victories left and right, so they're number two, and I definitely, definitely wouldn't have wanted to serve with Berengar loses armies. I just made up that name, but it's appropriate. Berengar loses armies. Anyway, I say an Adelbert, or the Adelberts, because there have actually been two Adelberts in our story so far. I just didn't bother differentiating them at the time. The Adelbert who marched on Rome against John VIII way back in 887 in alliance with Lambert I of Spoleto was actually Adelbert I. He had a few minor scuffles with the papacy and the empire, but mostly just maintained his oldings and formed friendly alliances with other ducal families, notably the Kadeshi, one of whom he married. His son is the current Adelbert, known as Adelbert the Rich. It's good to be the Duke of Tuscany. Both Adelberts were not exactly people to take the lead as their first instinct. Let's say that if this were an Indiana Jones movie, Adelbert would let someone else go first and find and disable all the traps. He may not have been a hero, but, spoiler alert, Adelbert and his family die nice natural deaths, despite being in a fairly dangerous region of Italy wedged between the Empire and the Papacy. It's not that the Adelberts couldn't lead, they did some important work for the Gadeshi and seemed to have been competent military leaders, it's just that if you gave them a choice, they would let someone else get stabbed instead, thanks. By the way, if you're wondering where the various Gadeshi relatives found sanctuary after the death of Guy IV, well, they probably went into a bunch of different places, but let me just say that Adelbert the Rich had a son named Guy, and Guy had a son, too, named Lambert. Anyway, end podcast footnote. So Louis the Blind was invited to come be king by the various Italian nobles, but especially the Adelberts, basically because he wasn't Berengar. Louis invaded in the year 900, and did a decent job against Berengar's remaining forces. He was even crowned emperor in 901 by the Pope. But, well, about those Magyars. After the Battle of the Breda River, the Magyars had proceeded to lay waste to the northern Italian countryside, in the Po Valley primarily, sacking many towns and churches, and even attempting to attack Venice itself, using inflated leather bags as flotation devices, which is kind of a funny image. They actually managed to sack one of the Venetian islands before being driven away by the navy because... I mean, come on, on the one hand you have a bunch of guys on leather bags, and on the other hand you have a bunch of guys in, you know, actual ships who are used to fighting and stuff. Anyway, by and large, anything not heavily fortified or protected by the Venetian navy was subject to horrific raids. And Louis the Blind does not seem to have been able to stop them. By 902, most of the Italian nobles had switched back to Berengar's side. With this support, Berengar actually managed to win a battle, captured Louis, and Louis promised never to invade Italy again. Although, I actually have to say that this battle was probably less of a battle and more Berengar catching up to Louis as he retreated. With Louis the Blind gone, Berengar turned to the Magyars. Now, we should say at this point that Arnulf had finally died, and there's some discussion in the sources that the Magyars may have been ready to leave as a result but this theory relies on them being active allies of Arnulf, and then meekly leaving after their alliance was not renewed by the regents of Louis the Child. 
Alternatively, they were so infuriated by the change in policy that they started a war with the new administration and withdrew to pursue their revenge. I think we know enough about raiding horsemen at this point to be a bit skeptical of this theory. In all likelihood, they had taken what they wanted and just wanted to get their loot home. Berengar's renewed consolidation of power may have made things start to look like work, and anyway, when Berengar approached them with a cash payment to leave, well, they took it. This is the Italian equivalent of the Danegeld. But Berengar went a little further than buying peace. Berengar clearly needed some military oomph, and these Magyar boys, well, they were pretty good in a fight. So Berengar hired some to stay on as mercenaries. It isn't clear exactly when this happened, but by 905 there were sizable Magyar units within Berengar's army. We know this because in 905 Louis the Blind broke his promise and invaded Italy again. Berengar offered battle, but Louis balked at Berengar's new army of terrifying heathen centaurs. In the retreat, Louis's army broke up. Louis sought sanctuary in a church, but was dragged out by those heathen Magyars and brought to Berengar. There, for breaking his promise, Berengar had him blinded. Man, it is kind of lucky that that happened, or that regnal name would have been super confusing. I mean, it would have made no sense. At any rate, the now appropriately named Louis the Blind left Italy and made his way back to Provence, where he recovered his health and ruled until 928, which is a nice change from the usual end to the story. Realistically, though, his brother-in-law, Hugh, had most of the power in Provence, and Hugh would inherit Provence after Louis the Blind's death. Furthermore, we should point out that neither Louis the aptly named, nor Hugh, ever gave up on Louis's claim to be emperor. When Louis died, Hugh inherited that claim. For a few years, Berengar seems to have had some peace. I should note that Liutprand of Cremona places an invasion in here somewhere, but the other chroniclers all disagree. Between 905 and 920 or so, Berengar ruled more or less undisputed. So what did Berengar do with his time? Well, the main thing Berengar did during this time was to try and stabilize his regime. He took a few corrective actions. First, Though the traditional Lombard capital at Pavia remained the legal capital of Berengar's little kingdom, Berengar de facto ruled from Verona, a city in his home territory of Friuli, which he proceeded to heavily fortify. He also set about trying once again to repair the bureaucracy. He did this in a very specific way with important Carolingian precedents, but which were somewhat new for Italy. You will recall that the Lombard Empire had assured the loyalty of its bureaucracy and aristocracy with land grants. One of the key differences in the Carolingian system was that the Carolingian kings made grants to the church as well, notably the bishops. This had been done since Charlemagne in Italy as well, but Berengar really stepped up the ecclesiastical grants. As a general policy, this wasn't the end of the world. This kind of thing had worked very well in northern Europe. The problem would lie in the scale of the grants and in the situation of the bishops in Italian society. To take the latter point first, and we're not going to be able to do it much justice here because this is going to be more of a, a thing for the future, but the bishops in Italy had essentially become identified with the government of the Italian cities. And while their power was ascendant at this point in time, they would eventually lose control of their temporal powers. We have already seen this process start in Milan. This is more of a long-term thing, though. The short-term problem with Berengar's policy was the scale of the grants and the people he gave them to. In the eyes of many historians, Berengar's gift-giving was a ludicrous policy of desperate frivolity. 
Berengar is seen as giving away huge tracts of land, and even more importantly, giving away important rights that held the Italian political order together. These are things like the ability to collect tolls and tariffs and taxes, and most importantly, in the opinion of most historians, including myself, the right to build fortifications were given to all sorts of people. This had some fairly incontestable ramifications. We've already discussed in this series how lands and governmental offices were slipping out of governmental control into private hands. For the limping Italian bureaucracy, the loss of lands and income would be a fatal blow from an economic standpoint. From a strategic standpoint, giving this economic power to people who also now had the ability to defend their holdings with military fortifications had some ramifications that are fairly incontestable. But it should be said that this policy was not one of abject profligacy, as it has often been portrayed. To deal with the basics first, early on in his reign, Berengar handed out land grants left, right, and center. The grants tailed off after he had settled in, but Berengar was criticized for undermining his regime's economic underpinnings with poorly thought-out grants. Indeed, many of the people Berengar gave land to in this period would rebel later, spoiler alert. But there's another side to this. Professor Barbara Rosenwein, in an article for the historical publication Speculum, argues convincingly that Berengar's policies of gift-giving, while they did ultimately allow the disintegration of post-Carolingian Italy, were part of a coherent policy. The gift-giving has seemed profligate to later historians because many of the individuals were identified by their job titles, like bishop, rather than their family connections. So it seems like Berengar is just tossing out deeds to random people. But Professor Rosenwein has made a decent case, as good as the remaining evidence allows, really, that there were really only two or three very powerful families involved in the land grants beyond Berengar's own family and supporters, which is a pretty coherent small group to deal with. So instead of just tossing land around willy-nilly and having it inevitably blow up in his face, Rosenwein paints a picture of a careful attempt to secure loyalty from some key figures. Podcast footnote. A number of these gifts were given to female relatives or the religious institutions controlled by these relatives. One might be tempted to cynically say that this was part of a strategy to keep these lands within royal control, with the basic assumption presumably being that these female relatives would be relatively easy to control. While there is a large element of this kind of thing on the record, and that's not an absurd thing to say, a potential alternative narrative also emerges from a more careful study of Rosenwein's evidence. These relatives gained fairly significant influence as a result of their gifts and the positions of religious authority that they held, regardless of gender. And they were not entirely shy about utilizing it. This was clearly helped by the fact that a number of these women possessed strong blood ties into the Carolingian clan. As a result of the familial relationships thus present, many of these women could have been at least as influential as any of the men we've discussed in our story. They would not have been leading armies, but there is clear evidence of these women fulfilling administrative and even legal functions. The churchly sources are, of course, not fans of these powerful women, but this may have been about something more than pure misogyny. It seems that Berengar may have used his women as something like a bureaucratic staff, managing his affairs in his absence or holding down regions through their legal control of religious institutions. This was in many ways the social space the clergy was trying to carve out for itself, so some of their resentment may have come from the competition over this socio-political space. I think given the somewhat surprising number of strong women we have met in this series, and between us I have left out some for time reasons, 
and we're going to be meeting more in the future, that this may have become a common practice in Italy, if somewhat obscured by the paucity of records. This paucity of evidence makes this a hard point to discuss, but Professor Rosenwein's article presents some very interesting evidence in light of some upcoming stories. So watch this space. End podcast footnote. As it happens, all this gift-giving did blow up in Berengar's face, as we will see shortly. So maybe Berengar put his trust in the wrong people, but the same basic policies were being used throughout the Middle Ages. Indeed, none of the chroniclers of the time comment on Berengar's grants as any kind of oddity. It seems that they, people who were often alive during this time period, saw these grants as just how business was done. We can see this as a shift, a move that would ring down the curtain finally on the last vestiges of the Roman state, and that's that's a reasonable assertion to make. But we should view this as more of an evolutionary change rather than a revolutionary change, where Berengar just came in and mucked everything up for everyone else. More broadly, viewing the Roman state as a good thing is something of a modern bias, based on our own conceit that organized, centralized societies like ours are the only ones that are valuable. I'm certainly no lover of feudalism, but for those in Berengar's time, the changes he made do not seem to have been thought of as a huge break from the land-grant policies of earlier times, simply an escalation. But let us return to the period of Berengar's stability and the events of his reign. During this time, and in line with his kingly role as the protector of the church, Berengar, quote, participated, unquote, in the Battle of Garigliano. This was an effort organized and personally led by a new pope, Pope John X, who we will discuss more next week. You see, with the collapse of the Gadeshi kingdom, Saracen raiders had managed to establish yet another toehold in southern Italy. In the past, such toeholds had lasted generations and led to devastation, and the political authorities in the region had been unable to do anything about it because they were very busy hiring on these Saracens as mercenaries and making alliances with them. This time, however, Pope John organized a frankly huge coalition of local powers against the Saracens, which sort of shows both the increasing authority of the Pope from a religious standpoint, the increasing activism of the Pope, and sort of the weariness that the locals had come to feel towards these Saracen raiders. Numerous Lombard duchies, independent Italian cities, and even the Byzantines sent forces. So too did Alderic of Spoleto, the treacherous retainer from last time. The Papal States sent forces, of course. And then Berengar. Well, Berengar was very busy. He came himself, and he brought maybe some troops... As a result, he was technically in command, because the Pope was a clergy member, and Berengar outranked all the other lay lords. That said, all the chroniclers agree that the Pope was really running the show. Something I do not doubt, because this massive army steamrolled the Saracens and drove them out of Italy. I'm sure that if Berengar had been in command, he would have led them over a cliff or something. Regardless, the victory was won, and the Pope, a clever diplomat, crowned Berengar Emperor as thanks for his service. Previously, Berengar had only been King of Italy. But now he was emperor. Nice. Kind of important for our story, too. But nice. Immediately after the ceremony, Berengar gathered up his troops and hightailed it back to northern Italy, because his territory was again being threatened by the Magyars. But wait, hadn't Berengar paid for peace? And wasn't his army made up largely of Magyars? Well, about that. First of all, yeah, Magyar raiding continued despite the paid-for peace. Are we shocked? It seems to have been pretty widespread, and this is the period when the migration of peasants up into the mountains really took off in northern Italy. Some encastlementum had occurred previously, but it was much more widespread in the south, where the Saracen raiding was particularly bad. 
But now we have evidence, archaeological and documentary, of village fortification and migration happening in the north, as bands of horsemen ravaged the countryside. So even though Berengar had faced down all his political rivals, this was not necessarily an era of peace. Sometimes, wars happen not because of political disputes, but just because you have things and other people want them. The ramifications of this raiding was pretty serious, and not just for the peasants on the bleeding edge of the raiding. First of all, Berengar's main base of support in Friuli was right up against the Magyars, which can't have been great for his political and economic base of support. But more broadly, we need to think about this in terms of all that land that he had been giving away to friends and relatives. With raiding now a constant threat in the north, Berengar was forced to grant permission for nobles and villagers to fortify their settlements, and grant even more land as a reward for service against the Hungarians. As happened in northern Europe, the construction of fortifications against raiding had the unfortunate side effect of allowing the local nobility to resist incursions by any military force, including the forces of the king. On the political side, the Italians had now spent over a decade dealing with Magyar raids, and their king, well, he didn't seem to be stopping the raids very effectively with his mercenary army. His Magyar mercenary army. So, I mean, whatever the reality, the optics here are terrible. There's also some indication that the mercenaries were not super disciplined when it came to the population whose king they were supposedly serving. Though we can't be sure about this given the nature of the sources, I should say. Still, we have numerous reports of the Magyar mercenaries looting the countryside in their own right when Berengar wasn't looking. But these are not really the big issue. These are concerns for peasants. For the nobility, the biggest issue was increasingly one of patronage. We just spoke about how Berengar started off his reign with lots of land grants to his retainers and especially to his bishops. These rewards were given in exchange for service. But then after he hired the Magyars, well, why was he rewarding you again? What had you, the Italian noble, done for him lately? Bringing in these mercenaries meant less chance for locals to serve and get rewarded. From Berengar's perspective, this was probably a great thing, because it preserved the land holdings of the emperor and allowed him to preserve his source of wealth. But it shut the nobility out of the patronage system. And this made many much more willing to listen to Adelbert the Rich, someone whose antipathy for Berengar went back now to the days of the Gadeshi. So to review... The peasants are being driven into the arms of the nobility, who have been granted extensive economic and military powers to resist Magyar raiding. Berengar has then turned around and made himself unpopular by employing the same people raiding the countryside in order to avoid giving the nobility patronage. You see where this is going. In 921, tensions broke out into a civil war. Adelbert and many of the newly empowered bishops of Italy took up arms and invited both Rudolf II of Burgundy and Hugh of Provence to intervene. Hugh was apparently driven out, but Rudolf II was crowned King of Italy and fought a three-year campaign against Berengar. The pace of the campaign was set in 922, when Berengar faced his numerous opponents, one of whom was his own grandson, also named Berengar, outside of Firenzuola. It was a disaster for Berengar, which he survived by hiding under a pile of corpses. Berengar made some initial concessions, and then reinvaded with his Hungarian army, and used them to besiege Pavia, in the process burning it down before being driven off, burning down what was effectively his own capital before being driven off. At this point, Berengar lost control of his mercenaries, and they just looted their way back home through Friuli. The final battle was fought in 924, and surprise, surprise, Berengar lost. Of course, this is not the end of the story. A whole coalition of people had opposed Berengar, and just because Rudolf II was on top didn't mean that he had much local support. 
Once again, Adelbert turned on the king, and in 926, Hugh of Provence was once again invading Italy at Adelbert's request. Rudolf fled to Burgundy to gather an army, but political troubles kept him occupied there. Hugh and Rudolf remained at war for many years, but that is a story that is going to have to wait for another time. Though he'd been crowned earlier, Hugh would effectively rule Italy from 926 to 945. Berengar, of course, survived his numerous losing battles, and holed up in his stronghold at Verona. Probably Berengar hoped to wait this out as he had the previous reverses, but this time the writing was on the wall. His mercenaries' rampage had effectively destroyed his base of operations, and whatever political support he still had left. Apparently, the destruction of Pavia galvanized a conspiracy against him, and he was probably inevitably murdered by a retainer in 926. And so Berengar freely leaves the stage. I know this is a long episode, but let us take a moment to reflect on the life of a man who has played such a large role in our story about other people. Berengar had a preternatural ability to survive bad situations. The fact that those situations were often of his own making makes this somewhat less impressive. But we should start by recognizing that Berengar was not a total cartoon. He had some serious achievements. Berengar is notable for having 15 or so years of relatively stable rule, far longer than the Gadeshi. This time period was characterized and facilitated by what was, for the time, a somewhat forward-looking king domestic policy of strategically gifting royal land to supporters early on based on a careful mix of lay nobles, family members, and clergy. While these policies would cause the final destruction of the Roman bureaucracy and the rise of the Italian Middle Ages, one shouldn't confuse that for necessarily bad things. This was probably a serious attempt at reform. If things didn't go well, well, it's not like things had been going well anyway. Later, Berengar tried to hold things together with mercenaries, who did not require land grants and had no local ties. Similar policies would be implemented by other kings in Europe quickly in the next few centuries. Indeed, Otto III of the Holy Roman Empire had very similar land-grant policies, and he is rather fondly remembered. The use of mercenaries would take longer to come into vogue, but as we will see, it would become a major part of the European military world by the late Middle Ages. Of course, all of these policies, when implemented by Berengar, have been heavily criticized by many modern historians. That the land-grants would clearly lead to the final breakdown of the Italian political order is not something I will argue against, though critiquing him in the same breadth for using mercenaries to avoid land grants seems a bit hypocritical. I think if you view Italian history solely as a continuum from the Roman Empire to the Renaissance, this criticism makes sense. But if you view it in the context of a wider Carolingian world, as I have tried to do, this criticism is much less supportable. We have long since passed the point where land grants had come to be expected by the supporters of kings. Berengar not handing out land might have seriously undermined his regime, which was never on the firmest footing to begin with, so he needed to do something. The fact that contemporaries were trying to do many of the same things indicates that Berengar was not pursuing some sort of wildly unorthodox and destructive policy. Given the Frankish and Lombard cultural heritage of the aristocracy, and given the environment of seemingly unstoppable raiding, Berengar did what everyone else was doing. He gave away rights in order to ensure loyalty, and he let people build fortifications to fight off the horrible raiding. What separates Berengar from the pack to the point that he deserves a podcast episode unflatteringly debating his similarity to Yiddish comic stock characters is his unique lack of ability to really make his reforms produce results. And ultimately, I think that this issue comes down to one key thing. Berengar had reasonable policies. 
He had the political breathing room to give everything a try, but he was just, just so bad as a general. I mean, seriously inept. If half of what we hear about him is true, he wouldn't have been able to general his way out of a cardboard box. He would have had his men, you know, trying to light fires or something, rather than just tear a hole. Everyone would have died in a horrible cardboard box fire. I seem to have gotten a little off track. Now, I know that there is more to the world than military history. I have to admit that I do enjoy military history, but that's not the point here. The point is that this is the early Middle Ages. On your left, you have Saracen pirates. On your right, you have kleptophilic horse people. Everything is on fire. You are the king. Whatever else is going on in your kingdom, you have one job. Find some raiders, kill them, and display parts of their anatomy in various public places as a warning to the rest. Diplomacy is nice, and it's going to be an important part of the medieval king's bag of tools. Building up your political base is nice, and it's very important. In the long run, these things are very necessary. But this is the early Middle Ages. Your number one skill set as an early medieval king is to go out there, find something, kill it, and display it publicly. In a different time period or a different context, Berengar might have been able to be a successful king as a different kind of king. The kind who could have had his generals fight for him, but he would stay back at the palace and implement intelligent policy, for example. But that was not the time and place in which he lived. Berengar had to fight for his kingdom, and he was just really terrible at it. Somehow, through sheer dumb luck and determination, he kept ending up with political authority, authority which required him to lead armies, which he tried to do, and just kept failing miserably. And this failure, well, it colored everything else he did. If he'd beaten off the Magyar raiders, he would have been a hero, but he didn't, and he couldn't. And as a result, everything he did, even things other kings did that produced positive results, turned into negatives. Rewarding supporters is a great plan if you're a medieval king. And if he'd been able to drive out the raiders, his use of foreign mercenaries might have made people grumble, but potentially not rebel. It could have been a real leap forward in medieval statecraft. But instead, it became a keen political grievance that made them realize Berengar's military weakness and their own strength. Strength that they had because of the gifts from Berengar. This brings us back to the chief theme of this episode. Was Berengar a Schlemiel or a Schlemazel? One could argue that outside events had a strong role in Berengar's failures. For example, the numerous outside invasions that ran him over. And Berengar was facing some pretty intense military threats. Lambert was probably some kind of genius based on the little we know about him, and horse nomads like the Magyars had been running over armies like Berengar's for centuries and would continue to do so for centuries to come. But Berengar wouldn't leave things alone. He kept getting back in there, grasping at that last straw, and screwing everything up for everyone, despite a clear lack of talent. As a result of his reign, the Italian political structure was damaged beyond recall, both in terms of the respect people paid to the central government and in terms of its economic and military fundamentals. As the Magyars raided, the peasantry was driven further into dependence on the nobility, weakening the ability of the central government to exert control. Of course, from the peasants' point of view, Berengar did little to stop the Saracen raids, while seeming to positively encourage the Magyars by hiring them to just come over, and then, when he wasn't looking, steal their stuff. So I think we have a definitive answer. At the fancy dinner party of history, Berengar the Schlemiel of Friuli would repeatedly, and remorselessly, spill the soup of his reign all over the nice bureaucratic suit of Italy, Berengar's unwitting Schlemazel. Okay, this one was a little bit different, but
but I hope you all enjoyed it. Next time, we will wrap up the story of medieval Italy by talking about Albrecht, Pope John X, Hugh of Provence, and the woman that tied all three of them together, Marosia Theophylact. That's next time on Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.